The sermon text this morning is from 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. How have you spent your time this past week? Sometimes hard at the uh, end of a week to review and remember what you've done in the past week, isn't it? Studies suggest that as much as 45% of adult behavior arises out of habit and routine rather than conscious decision-making. So living a good life or being virtuous, as Aristotle put it, is the habit of right-doing. And while bad habits can feel like millstones that hold us back. Are there any good habits that you've established, uh, maybe recently or maybe long-formed, that you found really helpful? Or maybe some bad habits that you are currently trying to eliminate? Ask yourself, what are some of the most significant habits and practices that shape your attitudes and actions? What, what are the things you regularly think about? that you habitually do? And what do those reflect about what you love and how do they shape what you love? Maybe there are habits you want to change. Maybe you want to exercise more to feel better or you want to stop drinking soda, uh, start reading more as a regular part of your routine. More seriously, you may want to stop losing your temper or stop looking at pornography. But how do you change a bad habit? How do you cease from these kind of ingrained patterns that we develop? Well, there are books written on this topic, but in our passage this morning, Peter describes the Christian life as a radically new way of living. It's a whole new set of habits. If you've been following uh, through 1 Peter, you'll remember that Peter is writing to Christians in Northwest Asia Minor. Uh, He's been talking about suffering injustices at the hands of others. He's writing a letter to these Christians to help them navigate life in a hostile culture. He says, as you're living out what it means to follow Jesus, you know, being full of good works, uh, trying to avoid, abstain from lifestyles and actions that, that would dishonor Jesus, Peter says, you will be maligned. You will be unfairly accused. You'll find yourself on the outside of the in crowd. But don't worry about that. Peter says in chapter 1, set your hope instead fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he reminds them in chapter 1, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, being guarded in heaven, just waiting for you. And so he encourages them with these things and he's reminded them several times now of how they ought to endure suffering and injustice that they will certainly experience. He says the key is to follow the example of Jesus. And here in chapter 4, Peter draws out 
another aspect of Jesus' death and suffering. Because he suffered and died for us, we ought to suffer and die to sin. Because Jesus suffered for our sin, we should suffer against sin. He died for sin, so we should die to sin. We should cease from sinning. We should be done with it. Peter shows us, first of all, how we should do this by identifying sin, uh, what it is. And then Peter calls us to cease from sinning, to leave it behind. Uh, So identifying sin and ceasing from sin. These are our two main ideas this morning. So notice, first of all, the parallel phrases describing sin or identifying sin. Peter first uses the word sin in verse 1, and then he equates that with living for the human passions and not living for the will of God in verse 2. And then he describes it as um, the things the Gentiles want to do and a flood of debauchery there in verses 3 and 4. Then on top of these general descriptions, Peter also gives specific examples. He says, sin is living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Sounds like a list just summarizing the experience of many college students today. It's a life dominated by sex and alcohol, taken over by submission to the impulses of the body. And Peter gives these things as examples of sin. So from what Peter says here, how do we identify sin? What exactly constitutes sin? Well, first of all, Peter uses the word sin. The the Greek word has the idea of missing the mark, specifically missing God's mark. The catechism says that sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he has created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law. So sin is all of those concrete actions that don't live up to God's standard. And then he goes on to describe sin as living for the human passions there in verse 2. Meaning that you orient your life or maybe parts of your life, maybe even secret parts of your life, around these strong default inner urges. A therapist might call this addiction. uh, This desperate attempt to try to find happiness by satisfying some inner craving. And the addictive lifestyle might be termed dysfunctional. But it's more than dysfunctional. It's really self-destructive. One person said sin is the suicidal action of the human will against itself. Every time you sin, you are weakening your resistance to it. Or as David Foster Wallace, the novelist, put it, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap your real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. Worship power You will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The point he's making is that living for the human passions corrupts us from the inside. It's enslaving. So living for human passions is enslaving on the one hand. It's also unfulfilling on the other. Augustine saw sin as disordered love. He said that love is disordered when it seeks its final happiness in temporal and finite objects, you know, the kinds of things we can uh, 
sense with our, our five senses. When your love is aimed in some kind of temporal direction like that, it engenders all kinds of um, pathologies in, in human behavior. And so Augustine prays to God, for wherever the soul of man may turn, unless it turns to you, it clasps sorrow to itself, even though it clings to things of beauty. Let my soul praise you for these beautiful things, O God, creator of them all. But the love of them which we feel through the senses of the body must not be like glue that binds my soul to them. For they continue on the course that is set for them and leads to their end. And if the soul loves them and wishes to be with them and find its rest in them, it is torn by desires that can destroy it. In these things there is no place to rest because they do not last. The human passions are inevitably unfulfilling to the human soul. But notice how Augustine in that prayer follows 1 Peter closely in uh, not calling human passions sinful, uh, but rather living for human passions is sinful, being slaves to them. So Peter's description of sin as living for the human passions should leave you pondering what passions rule you. What default inner urges are unrestrained and dominant in your life? And then also, Peter describes sin in verse 2 as not living for the will of God. Not only living for human passions, but not living for the will of God. So back to the words of the catechism. Sin is rebelling, rejecting, ignoring, or living without reference to God. So here we're reminded that sin is primarily a vertical transgression. It's not simply horizontal. King David had an affair with Bathsheba, murdered her husband Uriah along with the men who were with him and then covered it all up. And yet when his sin was uncovered, he prays to God in confession and says, against you, you only, have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight. How can David say that? Against you, you only, have I sinned. Although his sin had hurt and offended others, it had broken God's law. It was fundamentally against God. Now, because we are so sensitive to what other people think of us, we usually feel worst about sins that are known. Maybe sins that actually hurt someone else. So think of how bad you felt the last time that you sinned publicly, or maybe sinned secretly and then were found out. You probably felt shame, embarrassment, self-condemnation. Maybe you cried, poured out profuse apologies. Now imagine if you felt as bad about the fact that your sin is known by and offends God as you do when your sin is known by and wounds others. As one author said, we never see sin aright until we see it as against God. In the West today, the idea of sin has been nearly obliterated and replaced with um, concepts like unfairness or harm, not granting individual rights or not getting consent. But where consent is given or where no harm is done, no sin is done. Or on the other hand, when someone feels uh, repressed or, or maybe unfairly treated, it's assumed that a sin has been committed. So tolerance is the virtue and intolerance is the sin. In other words, wrongdoing is seen in exclusively horizontal terms with no reference to a binding moral code. 
However, sin is a transcendent category involving transgression against a universal law. Even an atheistic sociologist named Jonathan Haidt argues that there are universal moral intuitions, things hardwired into us, although he attributes these universal innate moral codes to evolutionary processes laid down over millions of years. But I think his basic insight is correct. There are universal moral intuitions. But they don't come from biological evolution. They are innate by God's design. And we are accountable, not to evolutionary processes, but to a personal God. His law has been broken. Sin is fundamentally vertical, is not living for the will of God. And then finally, Peter identifies sin in verse 4 as a flood of debauchery. What an image, a, a flood, just this unrestrained outpouring. Sin can be like that, just spontaneously overflowing. And it's a flood specifically of debauchery, which means an empty lifestyle with, with no wholeness. It's, it's dehumanizing. It leads to destruction. Living for the human passions leads to a flood of debauchery. Unrestrained, dehumanizing living. If you ever observe a life that is just overgrown with the weeds of sin, you'll, you'll notice that invariably the more sins come to dominate a person's life, those sins have an isolating, ruinous kind of effect on relationships. And then sin also has a corrosive effect from the inside. It's, it makes bitter and, and blind. When sin becomes a flood of debauchery, it, it does what floods do. It destroys everything in its path. So sin isn't mainly then our tendency to consume things, but rather our our tendency to ruin things. All of this is simply to point out and identify what sin is. It's missing God's mark, being enslaved to human passions, disregarding the will of God, uh, this flood of debauchery. But Peter's goal isn't simply identifying sin, Uh, but also, secondly, ceasing from sin. The concern is not just to show us what it is, but to tell us how to be done with it. So let me read uh, verses 1 and 2 again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh No longer for the human passions, but for the will of God. Peter's concern is that these Christians should be done with sin. You know, whatever your habits may have been like before coming to Jesus, leave them behind. Resolve not to live any longer for the human passions, but for the will of God. And so, in order to equip them for this new lifestyle, uh, to help them cease from sinning, Peter gives them a method, a warning, and a promise. A method, a warning, and a promise. So first of all, he gives them a method for ceasing from sin. In verse 1, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. It's the main imperative in this passage. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Here's his method. Maybe it surprises you. Uh, When Peter talks about ceasing from sin, he basically says, do it by thinking differently. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In chapter 2, Peter had said, Beloved, 
abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Sin is at war with your soul. And here Peter says, the main weapon that you bring to that fight is your thinking. Your thoughts become your armor in the battle. Many times we feel like our thoughts ambush us, don't we? We find ourselves inadvertently kind of rehearsing things in our mind we wish we weren't thinking about, like we got ambushed by those thoughts. But Peter says here, take up your thoughts like a weapon or like armor in this war. Arm yourselves with a particular insight, this way of thinking. What is this new way of thinking, Peter? Well, just before this, Peter said, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. You have to arm yourself with thinking the same way Christ was thinking when he suffered in the flesh. What was that? Well, for that, we have to look back to chapter 2. So look back at chapter 2, verse 21. Verse 21, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This was his way of thinking. He was committed to not sin. He resolved not to sin. There was no sin, no deceit, no retaliation, but he entrusted himself to the Father. Arm yourselves with that resolve. I'm not going to sin. I'm determined. I'm planning not to sin. But there's even more here going on than that. Jesus certainly is our example in this. uh, But he's even more than our example. Again, in chapter 2, verse 24, Peter said, Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died. He suffered in the flesh. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh along with Jesus is done with sin. The meaning of this phrase, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Uh, The grammar is a little bit unclear. It's a hard phrase, but I think Peter is drawing out this truth that anyone who is united by faith with Jesus in, in his death has suffered and died in a sense along with him in a spiritual sort of way. Jesus died on the cross for our sin so that we might die to sin. Peter said that clearly in chapter 2, verse 24. And now he's, he's bringing out that same principle again here to teach us that Jesus is not only our example, but that he has brought the power of sin over us to an end. The Christian is through with sin, done with it. The Greek phrase, more literally put, is has finished with sinning. We are done with it. So sin no longer rules us, meaning we are no longer characterized by sin. We're we're done with it. Of course, sins are still present in the Christian's life, right? Christians don't claim to be perfect. And yet still, there is a clear and decisive break with sin. Dallas Willard uh, recounts how he saw a bumper sticker that said, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And then he reflects on that. He says, just forgiven? Is that really all there is to being a Christian? Christians certainly aren't perfect. 
there will always be need for improvement. But there is a lot of room between being perfect and being just forgiven. You could be much more than just forgiven and still not be perfect. The point that Willard is making is that Jesus certainly does forgive us for our sin, but he also frees us from the power of sin. Just as our sin was the cause of Christ's death, so his death is the death of sin in us. When you are tempted by sin then, or if you can think of some sin that you keep returning to over and over, what the Puritans called a besetting sin, you know, in these cases, you must resolve not to sin. But also, remember that you are dead to sin. It cannot enslave you. Because Jesus died for your sin, you are dead to sin. So the next time temptation comes, you can pick up these truths like, like weapons and say to sin, you have no power. You cannot have my obedience. Paul says something similar to this in Romans 6. Uh, Paul says, we know that our old nature is crucified with Christ on the cross in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. What do we do with that truth? Well, Paul goes on to tell us. He applies it by saying in verse 11, so then, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So he says, because you are are dead to sin, consider yourselves, think of yourselves as dead to sin. It's the exact same application that Peter is making here. Jesus died on the cross, making sure that your sin is dead. The power over you is is gone for sin. So, So what do we do with that, Peter? And he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is the method that Peter gives us. Now, the uh, obvious objection arises in the mind of the Christian. I don't feel dead to sin. In fact, its power often feels irresistible over me. Right. And that's why Peter says, arm yourselves. This is a battle. It is difficult. Resisting sin will feel like suffering. Uh, It would be nice if God would just remove our sins by some kind of spiritual liposuction while we're sleeping. Just zap it away. When we wake up, we're done with it. Uh, But that's not how God has done it. The normal Christian experience is that removal of sin comes through long, often painful, certainly laborious process. And so to say that you are dead to sin doesn't mean that it won't feel like a struggle but it does mean that you can win the battle. So Peter has been talking throughout this letter about external suffering that that Christians will face from the outside, the the culture around you pressing in, in, injustices and being maligned. But here in these verses, Peter describes another kind of suffering. It's the difficulty of putting to death the sinful flesh, So this is the the inward spiritual suffering that we feel in struggling against sin. It is a battle. It is difficult. So there is external suffering, but Peter here points out there will also be an internal struggle. If you feel discouraged in this fight, just consider um, these thoughts from Hebrews uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. 
where the author says, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Looking to Jesus. Consider him. And he goes on to say, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. So consider Jesus. Look to him. As you are struggling against sin, you have not gone as far as he has gone, so keep striving. He goes on in verse 12 to say, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Consider Jesus. Look to him. As you are fighting against sin, you haven't gone as far as he went. So keep fighting. Make straight paths for your feet. If you could imagine temptation uh, coming by degrees on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, with 10 being the most intense temptation and 1 being the, the easiest or the lightest temptation, when do you usually give in? You, what's your normal breaking point on that scale? Three? Four? For a mature Christian, you might venture a six. But at some point, we often cave. We yield to sin's temptation. But Jesus never sinned. He never yielded to to temptation. Meaning he experienced the full range of it. Jesus experienced something you and I have never experienced. A ten on that scale. And yet, he resists sin completely. Sin is waging war. There's a battlefield. And Jesus took up the most intense spot on that battlefield and conquered. Keep fighting in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. So for the joy set before you, keep fighting. Renew your resolve. Arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Again, it is difficult which is also a very good reason to work together with other Christians when you're fighting against sin. The book of Hebrews earlier had said, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that no one may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he says, Take care, all of you, lest any one of you should be hardened. We all look out for each, both correcting and and encouraging. There are two books that are incredibly helpful in this regard. The first one is called The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. This whole book, it's it's not terribly long, maybe a a hundred pages or so, but this this whole book is just an explanation of one verse, Romans 8.13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then there's a second book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices uh, by Thomas Brooks. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And and in this book, Brooks uh, details out 12 devices that Satan uses to draw people into sin. The ways that Satan makes sin look like candy to the Christian to to draw them into it. Um, And then the author shows how to think biblically in response to these things. Really just giving us the same application that Peter gives here. Arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. How to think biblically in response to temptation. And 
both of these books are, are incredibly helpful in fighting against sin. So grab one of them and read it together with another Christian and, and pray and fight against sin together. So Peter provides this method for ceasing from sin. But then Peter also issues a warning about sin. So method and now a warning. So look in verses 4 and 5 again. He says, with respect to this, uh, these sins that they indulge in, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This isn't the first time or the last time that Peter reminds these Christians that there is a day of judgment coming against sin. I've gotten one speeding ticket in my life. It was uh, when I was in high school, graduating from high school. It was the week I graduated from high school. Um, I grew up in rural Wisconsin, and there are some of those uh, farm roads, you know, just outside of town, the long, straight, as far as the eye can see, you know, just kind of bobbing up and down over the uh, rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. To a teenager, they look very much like a racetrack. And as I was going 98 miles per hour, um, the top of the hill, there was the police officer. And uh, he pulled me over and still remember the, the first thing he said to me when he approached the car. He said, where are you headed in such a hurry? Um, I treated the road like a racetrack and then had to give an account for that decision. And Peter says here, there will be an accounting for these decisions. Whatever life may look like to you right now, there is a judgment that will come for these sins. Don't be fooled by appearances. Sin will be judged. Lifestyles of sin have a certain kind of appeal to them, especially if you're in high school. You feel the restrictions that your parents are placing on you. Uh, You see the experiences and freedoms that others have. Um, You wish you had those experiences those lifestyles can have a certain appeal. And, and even after you've firmly left behind a former way of life, if you've been walking as a Christian for years, it still seems like the passions of the flesh are never far off. The temper, the coveting heart, the lusting eyes. You know, all of these kinds of things seem to hold out the hope of pleasure. But Peter says, don't be fooled by appearances. Judgment is coming. I know that this is one of the less appealing aspects of the Bible's teaching for many. Uh, But judgment makes good intuitive sense, doesn't it? You wouldn't want to live in a nation without laws, would you? You wouldn't want to live in a city that had laws but didn't enforce them. And don't you think it's sensible that the international community responds swiftly and strongly to curtail evil regimes and war crimes? I would just say then that what God has established is universal justice. You see, I I think the real question is not should evil be judged. I think most of us agree on that. The real question is who gets to decide the law and the punishment for breaking it. And the Bible says that person is God. So Peter brings this warning about judgment for sin as a reminder for the Christians 
He says, as a Christian, you have left behind a former way of life, those passions that once ruled your days. You, know, you went along with the crowd, and the end of all of that is judgment. Why would you want to dive back into, or even dabble in, those things for which they will be judged? There will be judgment for wrongdoing in the end. And Peter says, think more of this than the fact that they malign you for not participating. Think more about being judged by God than you do about being judged by your neighbor. So there's this warning about sin. But then Peter concludes these verses with a promise. So a method, a warning, and now he gives us a promise. He concludes this this section, these six verses, with a promise of the gospel. There in verse 6 he says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So he says the gospel was preached to those who are dead. What does that mean? Well, it means simply that the gospel was preached to them while they were alive and now they are dead. Um, so that's it. So some of the Christians from the churches that Peter is, is writing to have died. Uh, but while they were still living, they, they heard this gospel preached and they believed it. And because of their faith in Jesus, even though they experienced um, being judged in the flesh the way people are, that is, they died physically, though they experience that right now, they live in the spirit the way God does. Their death in the body became an entrance into eternal life, life in the spirit with God. And Peter says, this is why the gospel was preached to them, to avoid judgment. What is the gospel? What is the good news of the Bible that was proclaimed to them through which they believed and came to escape judgment? Well, the good news of the Bible in a single sentence, we've already read it, is chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ was judged so that final judgment could be avoided. This is the gospel that was preached to them and that some believed in, that Christ was judged so that judgment could be avoided. Jesus deals with the real guilt that leads to judgment. He bore that sin and guilt in his body so that you don't have to. So the gospel that I'm proclaiming to you right now that was proclaimed to some people in in Peter's day that they believed in says an unbelievable thing about you. Not guilty. Some of you may feel very guilty about your sin. Maybe even more guilty after considering this passage together this morning. But the gospel reminds you that Jesus has borne guilt. So the call that Peter issues here to cease from sinning doesn't earn us freedom from guilt or escape from judgment. God gives freedom from guilt and judgment as a free gift through Jesus Christ. Have you ever had a boss or maybe a spouse or a parent Uh, that you feel like is just very hard to please, may have said in your mind, no matter what I do, it's never enough. I promise you, God is even harder to please. God's standard is not 
more good than bad. His standard is flawlessness. Absolute perfection. And the good news of the gospel is not that God is easy to please. The good news is that Jesus has pleased God completely. He has lived the perfect life that God demands. And then this is the gospel promise that God gave Jesus your guilt and gives you Jesus' flawlessness so that you may be judged in the flesh the way people are. That is, you will die. But on the other side of that death, you may live in the Spirit the way God does. This is the grand news of the Gospel. By union with Christ in His death, we escape the power of death over us and we escape the future judgment of death. And this is why we can say, God loves you. God loves you so much. I love this quote from John Owen. The greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness that you could do to Him is to not believe that He loves you. I'm so glad that Peter ended here with this note of promise and hope. We do have sins. Sin sours life rather than sweetens it. And yet obedience to the Father responding to his great love to us by putting away sin brings a great sweetness to life. And yet we don't do that to earn the Father's love, but as a response to his great love for us. So as we conclude our service, we'll take a moment of silence. And I encourage you just to reflect on God's great kindness to you in Jesus Christ, extending to you an offer, not guilty, the removal of sin's power, No expectation of judgment, but only hope of grace, both now and in the future. Reflect on these things, and then I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment.